Welcome to the Political Risk Podcast, an independent podcast focused on geopolitical risk to serve decision makers in specialty insurance markets, reinsurance, and beyond. I'm your host, David Benyon, and I'm joined this time by Bruce Carman, Chief Underwriting Officer at Hive Underwriters. That's the MGA that Bruce founded back in 2017 as Hive Aero, as a cover holder writing aviation hull war insurance business. Bruce has specialised in aviation war insurance for more than 30 years, previously working at Cathedral and Atrium Underwriting. He's been a pioneer in the use of third-party intelligence sources for threat assessment, together with models, to monitor aircraft exposures and ground aggregations at airports. This combination of threat and exposure data continues to form the backbone of Hive's knowledge-led underwriting philosophy, and we'll get into Hive's Sentinel system later in this episode. Bruce is a regular speaker at aviation conferences, as well as a contributor to market publications, including writing the Aviation War chapter for the Insurance Institute of London's War Risk and Terrorism Research Study Book. Since 2020, Bruce has been a civil expert insurance advisor to NATO's Transport Group for Civil Aviation, helping allied forces with the challenge of insuring assets in conflict areas. He also sits on the executive committee of the International Union of Aerospace Insurers, having been a member of the airline study group since 2004. He served on a whole list of other London market and international aviation market insurance committee positions over the years. Bruce, it's a deeply impressive CV and you literally wrote the chapter and verse on aviation war in the London market. So it's great to welcome you as a guest on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, David. Great to be here. Bruce, please would you provide an introduction to Hive, since you first established the business as a cover holder back in 2017 for Aviation Hull War, through to where the MGA stands today, perhaps providing a few milestones along the way in, in volume terms and the developing suite of products. My background is as a Lloyd's underwriter for some 30 years. In more recent times, well, since the mid-90s, actually, I specialised in aviation war risks. So that's insuring planes against malicious damage, effectively, wars, strikes, hijacks, bombs, etc. So Hive was set up in 2017. I set it up with a view to underwriting on behalf of third parties. We are what is termed a managing general agent, an MGA. And you mentioned Lloyd's cover holders. We write on behalf of Lloyd syndicates. We set up with the capacity, lead capacity of Beasley being Lloyd's largest syndicate at the moment, Arch, a phenomenal syndicate behind them as well, and other syndicates backing there. So we set up with $50 million of capacity in that niche area that is aviation war risks. And the thought was always to get as many data points, as many data sets and Intel providers as possible and give as much information about the assets, the values on the ground, the accumulation of them, and the threats to those areas where they may be on the ground. So that was the start point in 2017, as you say. And from there, we've grown our capacity year on year. We've grown the number of carriers and backers that are behind us. We've grown our staff. And everything's been growing, I guess it's fair to say. Hive then grew into what is called excess third-party war risks. It came about after 9-11 when, the, as you know, the strikes on the World Trade Center and the liabilities for war risks were stripped out by the aviators, and that now is a subset market. So we've grown into that market in 2019. The following year, 2020, we then started writing airline all risks. That's the hull and the liabilities, so planes crashing or banging into each other on the tarmac, etc. 
And last year saw us delve into the general aviation market for all risks as well. And we've taken on underwriters in that regard. We now have 10 binding authorities where we had, I believe it was an estimated 10 to $11 million as our five-year plan. We've now got, I think this year, somewhere between 120 and $130 million gross written premium for the calendar year. So we've grown our analytics. We've now got uh, an analyst full-time who is an expert on aircraft and with a background as a, a loss adjuster and a broker. And we've grown our team around it and now looking to grow into complementary classes, not just aviation. I really enjoyed the episode you did last year on the Insurance Covered podcast, ably hosted by RPC's Peter Mansfield. So for a more in-depth view of the history of the market, I'd certainly recommend anyone listening to check that one out. But rather than repeat the same, I thought you might want to provide more of an update. So part of the conversation in that podcast focused on war and allied perils. So you've got terrorism, hijackings, grey zone attacks, cyber terrorism. And I would suggest that old-fashioned war might be becoming rarer. I've got to say in 2024, it feels like that statement might not be the case anymore. How do you feel about that now? Yeah, I'm not sure it aged that well. Uh, good observation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for doing your due deal on that, um, Dave, because yeah. yes, you clearly caught me out there. I won't make any sweeping statements, or I'll try not to, about the likelihood of war going forward. I think that's probably the best case, isn't it? But, you know, our job is obviously to try and assess and try and analyse what is the chance of war, what is the chance of threat of terrorism. And yes, it, we obviously have experts that do that on our behalf and ably inform us. You know, I'm always intrigued by that question. Is the world a more dangerous place now than, say, 10 or 20 years ago? And I think it's easily argued both ways, if I'm honest, because, you know, depending on your own perceptions and or experiences, you know, that subjectivity of that, you know, what have you experienced and, and how dangerous do you think the world is? Well, if you live probably in a sleepy village in Cornwall, you probably don't think it's too dangerous at all. If you live in the city and you hear a loud bang, then you probably think, you know, someone's car's been blown up around the corner and, and it's certainly dangerous. But perception of risk is very, very nuanced and, and very individual. So I think the skill is to make sense. And we try to make sense of it, multiple data feeds, as I've already said. And, you know, that's the bit that we rely on is distilling those analytics from their raw form into something really usable by our underwriting teams such that they can get a steer and an idea of the sense of threat that, you know, the assets might be. And that might be assets on the ground, as I've already said, you know, if you're in a location which is, dare I say, near to war, and, and that clearly was the case with Ukraine, then, you know, when the indicators are that the politics are going sour, then one needs to start asking some serious questions and making some serious decisions on what you're going to insure and what price. There's been plenty written already about the aircraft that were detained in Russia at the start of that of the Ukraine war and the court cases that were ongoing, and we will save that one for another day. But what I think is a lot less well understood is how the aviation whole war market has moved on in the two years since then, the kind of what happened next space. So how would you characterize it for 2022 and the 2023 period? Yes, I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, I'm not going to elaborate, as you said, on Russia maybe for another day that one i'm certainly you know there will be i think multiple podcasts on that but that's in the two difficult boxes we currently stand with the unknowns as it is but there's never a dull moment that's certainly been my experience of 30 years in the class and 
I think the greatest change that I've seen undoubtedly in, in recent months, if not the past couple of years since the invasion of Ukraine, has been the withdrawal and retreats and reduction in capacity from the reinsurance market, the retro market and the reinsurance market. And we've seen a vast reduction in capacity that the reinsurers are willing to bring to the table. I don't think, in fairness, they necessarily understood exposures, whether that's from a grounding perspective, and I'm not talking specific to war here, but clearly there have been groundings in, in the past few years which have created sizable aviation events. There's uncertainty, as we've just said, regarding Russia, Ukraine. And I think all of that uncertainty has definitely squeezed the reinsurers to squeeze the direct market and there's limited capacity. That reduction in capacity, together with the events of the past five or so years, has seen whole war rates trend upwards significantly. And I think the trend is only a factor of the reduced capacity, the appetite to apply oneself to the class. There are fewer and fewer people that are willing to take a bet on it, certainly without the backing of the reinsurers. There was one event that was quite striking in Sudan in April 2023 when paramilitaries began to clash with Sudanese government military forces. And there was a, a battle for Khartoum's airport on the ground. Can you explain what happened to the airliners on the ground from that incident? Perhaps give a, an indication of the value of the losses involved and what happened to those losses? The Khartoum invasion and or civil war that ensued was, I would say, not anticipated or forecast. And one of those events that just came out of the blue, no one locally, I believe, was alert or aware to the potential for it. The chatter or normal chatter that we would expect on the waves to come through our sources wasn't there. And there were significant, as you mentioned, airliners on the ground. There was a Saudi aircraft sadly caught up in the crossfire and destroyed. There was a number of Sky Up aircraft and Badra Airlines, which are based there. So the war market, as a result of that, is looking at something in the region of a 250 to 300 million dollar loss. Assets have been destroyed, fact. And the Saudi aircraft in itself, I think, was valued somewhere around 110 million dollars. So it just goes to show that when something bad happens or when a civil war breaks out, then Certainly the airport is target number one, together with the radio stations and the TV stations, and obviously the governmental palaces should be one. And airports are constantly considered to be under threat in areas such as this. So I think keeping a, a steer on not just the political situation, but who's flying in there, knowing what happens. We somewhat ironically, you might think, have a chat group within Hive, war underwriters there and the analysts and, and claims. And we call it Hull War, primarily a Saturday chat. Why? Because the lights of Khartoum, it was the 15th from memory, 15th of April, which was a Saturday morning, our time. And, you know, you wake up and suddenly that's it. You're on call. You're effectively right there, meant to be assessing the situation, understanding who we've got there, whether we've got a loss, relaying that obviously to our carriers who are always interested as to what our exposure or their exposure may be. And yes, the irony tends to be that I'm not sure whether the terrorists and or militia tend to have a calendar and try to work to the weekends, but it seems to be the case for us. Very curious as to, if you can say, who is kind of the stakeholders you'd be chatting to in that scenario? I'm not going to mention the names. I think a number of people probably already know them, but some of them have been around for two or three decades and they are known Intel providers, some of them whom have 
services that relate to the government's boots on ground even. And they ordinarily give us a really good steer, I would say, as to, I'll call it the heat in a country. You know, we'll look at a heat map and determine from that, you know, what's hot and what's not. And that's a really good steer for our portfolio because we try on the whole to keep our portfolio in the cooler areas, dare I say it. But then we ensure people who do go into the hot spots as well. We then have people who are specific. So that's the country risk. We then also have people who are specific more to aviation. We have people who are looking at the overflight who have come around and there's two or three of those who are effectively giving us a service even for overflight risk. So not just airports, but territories which may, and you may remember that sadly MH17 Malaysian Airlines was shot down in 2014 over Ukraine. And you know clearly what that identified was that no TAMS, the notice to airmen, wasn't a terribly efficient service because to have a docket which had however many sheets of pages of information was noise in the cockpit in the dispatch bag of a pilot or a co-pilot or a navigator and ordinarily not read or not actioned on. So something had to change in order to alert airlines of impending danger to war risk zones where they may be flying through missiles. And, you know, here you are with a number of service providers now that have sprung up as a result, direct result, I would say, of MH17. And, you know, we listen to them, we utilize them. They are mainly saying that I'd say their services to airlines to try and give airlines a steer, literally a steer. But how many airlines really want to steer around a war zone when there's a fuel burn and a cost in the timetable? So, you know, that's a really interesting perspective. And then lastly, I would say, you know, we also have some ex-airline security personnel who have formed companies who give us the human capital side, which is really digging deep into the, dare I say it, forecasting and threat analytics of what's actually happening. And again, I think they'll hold their hand up and say, how can they do better with something like Sudan as with the airlines? So Bruce, at the most recent renewals for aviation war reinsurance, how would you characterise the war risk treaty reinsurance market? Has anyone entered or returned to aviation war? So the cost of reinsurance, as I mentioned earlier, has definitely risen exponentially over the past couple of years. And I think that's people getting their heads around the exposures and saying, you know, where are these exposures and we need to understand better. So gone are the days where war underwriters could literally just strike up, start writing the class and not really know where the values were sitting on the ground. So the people reinsuring the war market are now interested in those numbers as well and starting to maybe filter out the good from the bad, dare I say. I'd say on the whole war side, there have been a few new entrants, mainly coming from the all risks. So the Hull and Liabilities market has got overcapacity, I think it's fair to say, post-COVID and, and the pandemic where aircraft were sitting on the ground. We've seen a number of new entrants. Clearly, we were one of those in 2020 as well. And we've then seen, I think, a squeeze on the broken community maybe have gone to those all risk markets to say, look, if you want your line, you want your share on the all risks and liabilities, you probably need to give us something on the war risks because we're struggling a little bit on capacity on the war risks. So I think we've seen certainly some of the all risks move to or move back, dare I say it, into the war risk sector. I would caution that, you know, it's not somewhere for the faint hearted or it's not just have a go, Charlie, anymore. As I said, you really need to have the analytics. You really need to have the data. 
you need to have an accumulation system and someone that's on the ball maybe on a Saturday morning. So, you know, with that, I was proud to have added, we as Hive were proud to have added Allianz to our panel who are, you know, a very well-known household name who have been around insuring planes for, well, I think they're the oldest insurer of planes actually. So to have Allianz support Hive because of our analytics, because of our intel, because of our forecasting and the way that we underwrite uh, is a really proud addition to our panel in Q4. And Hive has actually moved to enter the general aviation market as well. What's been the decision-making rationale behind that move? Yeah, good question. We actually had capacity given to us by Arch when we entered the airline or risk market in October 2020. And you know, at that time, it wasn't a case of, well, you know, let's just chance our arm and start writing. None of us, if honest, I think there were people within the team who have knowledge and expertise in that area. But if we were going to do it properly, we wanted a lead market and somebody with a proven background. And without that resource, we weren't just going to do it. So we were fortunate enough in April of last year to secure the services of Jay Wigmore, who joined us, and he's made great headway already. So building out that class, we'd already been in the war risks elements of the general aviation. And so much like the airlines, we've kind of reverse engineered back into the Hull and Liabilities part now. So it's a full service to that GA book. Well, you talked previously about some of the um, services that you need to use in your lines of business. And I know from some of my background reading, you've previously had an eye for investing in geopolitical risk products and services. So exclusive analysis, for example, that's a, a country risk intelligence provider. And nowadays, it's part of S&P Global. So we live in interesting times. Do, do you feel in that context of intelligence providers, do you feel insurers are well enough informed? You can never be well enough informed. I think there's always room for improvement. And I think the thing is to have an inquiring mind, you know, whether it's thought leadership or just generally trying to square the circle and find the square roots of risk, really. So, you know, as we said earlier, is it a more dangerous world? Discuss. Well, two people will have a different opinion, depending on whether you come from the East or the West, specifically, I'd say. So what we're trying to do is certainly raise awareness, raise our own awareness. And certainly from where the market was 10 or 20 years ago, I think it really was a little bit more haphazard. Now, there's an awful lot more forecasting that goes into this. And, you know, to say that we've missed losses because of the Intel steer is absolutely correct. And I think that's part of the challenge. You know, as insurers, we should be ready for losses. We're, we're definitely ready to pay losses. And I think it's fair to say that we've paid our fair share. But to certainly have a good idea, not everybody's got the same impression. I, I was on a call just this afternoon with Chief Security and Safety Officer of, of one of the major airlines, and I won't say which, but they were saying that, you know, when they go back into a country, other airlines take it as a steer that is safe. Now, you know, that's fine, but I think everyone should be doing their own due deal. And that's kind of how we see it in the war risks market as well, is that all underwriters should be investing in their own ability to risk assess. And I think more and more are now. So exclusive analysis came about after 9-11 that Simon Sol successfully set up and exited, as you say, in, and it's now S&P Global. And, you know, they have been certainly a lead political market or political intel provider for us over the years. And now we've added another four or five data providers around them. I think the challenge is to just get closer to that risk, you know, as I call it, the square root of risk and identifying 
how we can best do this thing. Part of it comes into risk mitigation and measures that we can help. I'm not going to tell experts in safety and security how to run their business, but we can certainly ask questions and hopefully be on the same page so that we can see risk in the same way. So they're not surprised when they ask what is the rate you know, for flying into these areas. They can pretty much answer the question before they've asked it. This leads us rather neatly to Sentinel. So what is it? And what led you to decide to develop it, whether from the perspective of an underwriter's particular needs or the wider risk environment you face out there? Well, good question. I mean, we, we have developed this system. We have called it Sentinel. It's been something that's been building for some time. I think in my previous roles, I, I certainly always had a view to understanding what was on the ground by way of aggregation accumulation of these high valued assets and in a previous life many years ago when the ira were bombing things up in london i used to ensure political violence and terrorism and identifying buildings we used something called terror map which was designed back in the day and it used to use concentric circles going across a map in order to identify blast zones and theoretical maximums in any one of those blast zones and you know, the idea of accumulating or you know, risk managing that thing like an RMS or, you know, any of the NatCat underwriters may do with Windstorm in Florida didn't pass us by in the terror market back then. And that was in the early 90s. And, you know, to then transpose that into aviation war risks, the planes are flying at 550 miles an hour. They're here, there and everywhere. Schedules and timetables chop and change. You know, last year, I think 80% of the flights I took were either delayed or cancelled. So if I relied on a timetable for my accumulation system, well, it was certainly obsolete during COVID, that's for sure. So what we then sought to build was a system that used the transponder data. And you will be aware of various providers of transponder data that are out there in your mobile. You can see where planes are at any one time of the day. So we've taken that, built our own map, put transponder data on it to see where the assets are. And it also has got our schedules behind it. So we can see Hive's exposure to each and every asset, differently colored. And then we can see the exposure on the ground as well. So behind the scenes, we're building a data warehouse. So it becomes like, you know, that, dare I say, is it Sheila's wheels that has the tachometer in your car saying, where have you been and what have you done? I think our, our challenge will be to say, you know, we're going to take this information. I don't think we're going to use it, dare I say it, for pricing today, but steering the conversation to say, oh, look, where have you got assets? Where were your assets? And let's have a conversation with the clients about utilization. So that's the background to it. And I think couple that with the threat assessment data on a map and you start to get some pretty good information that you should be able to start to model with regards to pricing and exposure management. The objective is to see at any one point, how many planes you've got in the air or how many are in one place on the ground. Absolutely. That's exactly what it does. So, you know, we can click into it now and have a look at it and see exactly where the planes are and exactly what kind of exposure is. We could, but unfortunately our listeners would not be able to see that. So um, there are limitations to the former <laughs> at the time, perhaps. So th this is your own proprietary technology. and. You always hear these build versus buy conversations, particularly among technology service providers. You know, and the vendors are often against build in today's technology market. So why was it you decided that you need to develop this one for yourself? Really good question. The jury's out on, on whether it's better to 
build or buy, and I get that. And I think so far, Hive has been in the build category. Why? Because as an MGA, we are pushing boundaries. You know, I see us, dare I say it, as something akin to the speedboat, where the big carriers possibly are akin to the super tankers at rest in the harbour in anchor. And, you know, we're nipping around and you know, it's music in my ears when someone like Alliance say that we've built systems that at this stage they can't. And you kind of think, well, you know, there's a, the mighty Alliance and we've certainly built, I think, systems that they're impressed by. So, yeah, it isn't really anything more than just trying to build something that does the job. And if we don't see something in the marketplace that does the job, then we're certainly not going to pay for it. And I think that's been the case. So, whether it's our underwriting systems or our analytics systems or Sentinel or the like, We've built our own and we're not in the business of SaaS platform white labeling and selling the stuff. So there is a question as to, you know, whether ultimately the thought leadership that that brings is ultimately worth it because it's maybe a moment in time. But I think right now we've certainly got some extremely good carriers who are very grateful, I think, for the analysis and the monitoring and the data that we can provide them with, which I believe to be market leading. What you already have then is a tool to better inform underwriters' decision-making, I guess that's for, you know, risk selection and pricing, but it's obviously not a pricing engine. You already mentioned you're building a data warehouse. So, so do you have any plans for a second phase? What are you going to do with it next? The data warehouse will be the thing that gives us the exposure curves and from there, certainly sky's the limit, I guess, you know, think about it. It, it. We can apply all sorts of metrics across it because there are vast data sets that airlines pay for when they want to understand tourism and slots and airspace. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that we are in the business of trying to challenge those markets. I'm just saying that, you know, where it's detailed information, we could start to look at things like passenger load factors for our liabilities and the liability awards in specific jurisdictions and where people are carrying non-favorable nationals, shall we say. When I say non-favorable, I mean people with penal and or potential nuclear liability jurisdictions. So, you know, it starts to get a little bit more than just the war risks element that we may build this thing into. And I guess we just have to look and see how we can utilize it as a competitive advantage in the marketplace. You know, having all of the information at your fingertips doesn't necessarily allow you to charge the right price dependent on what the competitors are doing. So is AI part of that solution? It's a good question. You know, those two letters are on everyone's lips, I think, right now. And everyone doesn't know the power of AI, I think it's fair to say. I think we, you know, might have played with ChatGPT to send, you know, each other's loved ones a, a poem or something about insurance. But the full follow algorithms are out there. We've got syndicates and companies that are building algorithmic underwriting platforms. And there's a bit of a gold rush, I'd suggest, identifying the most efficient method to trade. You know, we want something that's limitless in its abilities, but we also want it to be so light touch. So less keystrokes is really where we're going with this thing. I don't want re-keying of data. So, you know, believe it or not, the aviation brokers still by and large are relying on trading using email to send PDFs, Excel, Word documents and PowerPoint to me and our underwriters. And, you know, with that, we either need a data scraper or we're re-keying that data. So, you know, that's just somewhat archaic in this day and age, if I'm honest. And Phase one was to develop a system to tell us what the peak exposures were at airports across the globe. 
Phase two, I'd say, is to see an overlay of a map with threat assessment data. We can then start to model frequency and the potential for a conflict as well as severity, you know, the sums insured on the ground. And phase three, well, what could that look like? Again, look to model overflight risk and the threat to those aircraft, such as I mentioned earlier, MH17 and the areas to be avoided. So that's where I would say the sky really is the limit. And that's it for another episode of the Political Risk Podcast. I hope you're enjoying the variety of guests we have on this podcast, which is what I set out to do for the project. Provide varying, fresh perspectives, combining CEOs, underwriters and brokers from the specialty insurance market with geopolitical authors, analysts, consultants and academics. So I'll keep doing that. In March, for example, I'll give you a sneak peek. I have two episodes in the works. One is with a former senior UK diplomat who's represented the UK at the UN and at NATO, focusing on the political risk landscape and looking at the landscape for geopolitical and security developments in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And also in March, I'll air the first of several special episodes set for 2024 in association with Mosaic Insurance. And that first conversation will focus on aligning the incentives for cyber risk and cyber insurance across different stakeholders, from SMEs to multinationals, cyber insurers, risk managers and cybersecurity professionals, as well as governments and regulators. So stay tuned in. Please give the podcast a review if you haven't already, and do hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. I've been your host, David Bennion, and my guest was Bruce Carman of Hive Underwriters. Production was by Peter McGill, and Lawrence Durkin provided the music.